my name is Patricia King and today I have an exciting message for you to hear. Stop! What are you thinking? We can't make it look like Patricia King is endorsing fighting. <clears throat> Hi folks, uh, Chris Rosebeer here. Just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, and your financial contributions to continue to bring this important radio outreach to you as well as to the world. And unfortunately, we don't have the the major cash resources that Patricia King does, but we have you, our listener audience, to help uh, support us financially so that we can keep bringing this radio program to you and to the world. If you don't already support Fighting for the Faith financially, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And there are perks to being a crew member. Just keep listening to the program to find out what the latest perk is. And, of course, if you would like to make a one-time contribution, you could do so by clicking on the Donate button. Or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, on to the program. We loved making it. We hope you enjoyed listening to it. Here we go. It's time... Another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Wednesday, December 21st, 2011. Something a little different today. For tuning in, you're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There is no shortage of crazy things being said out there. As a result of it, we've got to do the discernment work. Now, I'm going to do something a little bit different today. If you've uh, listened to Fighting for the Faith for any length of time, then you know that I have interviewed... Uh, two of the three uh, uh, contributors, uh, the uh, the three persons of the Team Pyro Trinity, <laughs> Pyromaniacs blog, uh, I've interviewed Frank Turk. I've interviewed a couple of times uh, Phil Johnson, uh, but I've never interviewed the third person of the Team Pyro Trinity, and that would be Dan Phillips. Well, I, I had the opportunity to uh, speak with Dan last night and to record a conversation regarding his book entitled The World Tilting Gospel. And so what today we're going to do is I'm going to play for you my interview of Dan Phillips of the Pyromaniacs blog as we discuss his book entitled The World Tilting Gospel, Embracing a Biblical Worldview and Hanging on Tight. It's a, it's a fantastic book. I actually um, I picked it up a while ago and uh, recently started reading it and just thought, you know, this covers the like the primary categories of uh, of of the biblical story of of fall and redemption and the and the gospel itself and it there's a lot of depth to it and even though um it there's a lot of depth it's actually very well written in a way that makes it accessible so 
Um, I was very excited to uh, have the opportunity to discuss this book with uh, Dan Phillips. And my interview with Dan is going to comprise the entire program today. Now, let's real quick, before we get to uh, my interview with Dan, let's talk about what the, the rest of the schedule is for the week. Uh, tomorrow morning at uh, 9 in the morning Eastern is uh, when my younger brother, Mark, uh, goes in for his brain surgery to remove the tumor uh, that's uh, sitting on his uh, left frontal lobe. So what we're going to do tomorrow, it's going to be a, a traditional light edition of Fighting for the Faith tomorrow, and I'm going to try to get that recorded today so that uh, it's ready to go out to tomorrow because I, I don't think I'm going to be in any shape to actually do a real edition of Fighting for the Faith uh, sitting on pins and needles waiting to hear word on how my brother's doing. And so because of that, I've made it an executive decision, and that is is that tomorrow will be the last Fighting for the Faith broadcast of this year. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a day early off uh, in order to tend to uh, my family. And so uh, I will be taking off Friday of this week and all of next week uh, you know, to tend to my family and be with my family for the Christmas holiday and uh, all of that. So I just want to let you all know that's what's happening. So next week, if you're listening to Pirate Christian Radio uh, during the normal uh, slot, which you'll hear our best of editions that are put into the rotation. So without any further ado, here is my interview with Dan Phillips. All right, on the line, I have Dan Phillips. He is the author of, well, a couple of books, but uh, most recently a book entitled The World Tilting Gospel. And you'll also know Dan from his writing as the third person of the Pyromaniacs Trinity over there at teampyro.blogspot.com. Uh, Dan, welcome to uh, Fighting for the Faith. This is our first conversation. Indeed. Thanks for having me on, Chris. I'm really happy to be here. Okay, so we you've got a you've got a book that's been out for a little bit of uh, well a little bit of time, and I happened to pick up a copy of it, and the name of it is the World Tilting Gospel. And I got to tell you, um, I, I I enjoyed the book. I really thought that there was some substance and meat to this. And what I really loved is that you gave a very clear presentation of the biblical gospel. Uh, in light of really solid biblical categories, I think anybody could really benefit from this book. You want to talk about that for just a minute? Praise God. Terrific. Yeah, I'd love to. Okay, so uh, you know, right off the bat, I, what I thought was interesting, you, you talk about the fact that the modern church has all of these advantages that the ancient church didn't have, and yet for some reason we're not having the same impact. Talk about that for just a minute. Yeah, well, the, the ancient church didn't even have a building to meet in. They, they met in people's homes. They didn't have um, big, fancy names. They didn't have celebrities. They didn't have radio shows. They didn't have Internet. They didn't even have mass production of literature. Uh, and yet they managed to basically cause uh, an intellectual, and ideological, spiritual riot wherever they went to the point where nobody could overlook what they were doing. It just shook up the power structures of each uh, town that they took this gospel to. And yet today, you just see the church fitting in, you see the church basically going along to get along, desperate to be liked by the world, but certainly not tilting the world. In, in Acts 17, the complaint is raised that these men who have turned the world upside down mm -hmm. have come here. But you just wouldn't say that about the church today, even though the church has big names, publishing houses, radio shows, TV shows, all sorts of what you'd think would be terrific advantages, but what's coming over those organs is obviously not having the same impact as what the early believers put out. 
So you think this is uh, a matter of the church being off topic? The church is definitely off topic and definitely off mission. Uh, many churches, I'm sure that if they were given a multiple choice test, they, they might pick most of the right answers. But what has happened is that they just are powered by a desperate need to be liked by the world, to be held respectable by the world, to be friends with the world. They, they measure even their spiritual and ministry success by how the world sees them. Mm-hmm. Just always an eye to that poll. And the early church just frankly did not give a rip about what the world thought of it. In fact, the early church expected the world to hate it, because Jesus told them to expect that. He said, they hated me, expect them to hate you. Okay, now obviously you're talking here from your experience within the American evangelical context. Tell us a little bit about... Um, you know, how did you come to Christianity and, and come to these conclusions? I mean, what's your experience in the Church? Oh, well, thanks for asking. Um, yeah, I was the world, and I hated Christianity. Um, I was born to wonderful parents, loving, dear parents, who did not raise me up uh, after the Gospel, and they were not walking with the Lord themselves. And my exposure to Christianity was through TV shows and movies, um, <clears throat> I didn't really know practicing Christians. When I got to know some in high school, that was the 70s, they were Jesus freaks. Every one of them seemed um, stupid and shallow. And by that time, I was involved in a mind science cult, sort of a, a new age uh, religion called religious science, or it's also called the science of mind. Mm-hmm. And it just it believed that it was getting the deeper sense out of Jesus' wor- words. All those uh, boneheaded Christians were just being too literal. They are just being too simplistic and too shallow about Jesus' words. And we were getting at the deep meaning, and we believed that Jesus taught that God was inside all of us, and that sin was just really uh, being out of tune with God, and that we are all expressions of God. And in fact, Christ, the Christ principle of God consciousness, is in every man, woman, child, uh, me, you, Adolf Hitler, everybody. And so the way to know God was to get inside ourselves and to, to delve deeper inside ourselves. So um, I hated Christianity. I had friends who tried to tell me about Jesus and about the gospel, and I, I just, um, I was the first kind of soil. You know, everything that they sowed was immediately gobbled up mm-hmm. and uh, taken away and, and twisted and countered. Um, but then the Holy Spirit started doing a work on me as I was trying to get get to know God by getting into myself, and the more I got to know myself, the less of what I saw in there was like God. The more I saw bitterness, hatred, um, lust, I wouldn't have used that word, um, just all sorts of brokenness and all sorts of twistedness, and I talked to some of my, uh, my peers or even my counselors in that religion, and they said, yeah, we all go through something like that, just hold on, it'll, it'll fade away. Wow. Which, think about that. <laughs> but I, I, I came to this point where I was doing this inventory of my life, and I saw that everything in my life was about me. Everything was what use I could get out of things, what use I could get out of people. And, and I saw that God was in that same place, and that I had really devised God in my own image. I devised a convenient God. And so that was a shattering realization when I realized that my concept of God was my concept of God. Mm-hmm. But, it, but for its authority, it just had me, and I was a rotten, hateful, selfish, foolish person. 
and I had basically founded my own religion. It's just I'd found a bunch of people who thought the same way as me, uh, or as, as I, um, which was convenient, but mm-hmm. it was shattering to see that. And so I started breaking one of the laws of religious science, which is you don't talk to God because God's inside of you, so you don't have to talk to him. He's right there. So you just affirm. But I started talking to him, and I, and I told him that I wanted to know him on his own terms, no matter what that meant. I wanted to know him as he saw himself. I wanted to know who he really was. And I tried to think of the worst thing I could pray. I said, even if it means being a Jesus freak, mm. uh, I don't care. I just want to know you on your own terms. And um, at that same time, I'd made friends with this Christian who had just treated me with a lot of love. He, he wasn't aggressive. That would not have worked with me. He just befriended me. And he told me if I ever wanted to talk about why he believed what he did, I should ask him. That was, for me, the perfect approach. Because then the Holy Spirit was doing this number on me, and I got to the point where I really wanted to know why. Because he was a real person. He, he wasn't all uh, um, slogans and bumper stickers. And so I asked him, and, and he told me. He told me about Christ. And... Um, I, in that period, he also gave me Lewis's Near Christianity. Mm-hmm. And, you know, now I, I see lots of flaws in it, but there was this one point that just clobbered me, which is that you can't call Jesus a good teacher, because that's just what we did call him. But he made the point that, that you can't dismiss Jesus that way, because somebody who says the sorts of things Jesus did isn't just a good teacher. He's either Lord or he's liar or he's a lunatic. And that really, my, my heart just sank, because I'd read all the Gospels. And I had <clears throat> I had a rough time fitting Jesus into our cult. <laughs> I did it, but it didn't. It wasn't good. I, I knew inside, boy, you know, I'm really stretching this. So it was like um, a puzzle piece that uh, didn't really quite fit where you put it into the puzzle. That's exactly right. I had to. In fact, one of my counselors said, "Yeah, Jesus seemed to believe in hell," and and uh, and he he just honestly admitted that Jesus really sounded like he wasn't saying the same things that we did. And I had to deal with that. But here was a person who was everything I wasn't. He was together. He was righteous. And he, he yeah, it's a funny thing. I was unsaved, um, but I believed in the miracles of Jesus, and I believed in the resurrection. Right. I mean, there's kind of a sermon, there's a sermon there. But I believed in the miracles. I believed in the resurrection. I just crammed it into my worldview. But I, I came to see that that didn't fit. And here was this person who was righteous, who was completely together, you know, to put it the way I would put it, and, and, and demonstrated his authority by his miracles, mm-hmm. and then crowned it all by rising from the dead, which was the moment where God could have just crashed his whole system. All God had to do when Jesus died was do nothing and let him stay in the, corp, in, in the crypt just like everyone else. But he didn't. And I just saw all that fit together and went to a church in February of 73. Boy, there's probably a longer answer than you wanted. No, this is a great answer, because I I want to build off of some of this. Okay, cool. Well, the preacher there was preaching the gospel, and I just, it was, there were hundreds of people there, but I felt like he'd been reading my journals, and he was talking straight to me, and and I just see that that was the Holy Spirit sending the gospel in the effectual call home to my heart, and now this message that I'd mocked and dismissed and didn't even really grasp was just God talking straight to me through the gospel, mm-hmm. and um, and that day I I, uh, I turned to Christ, trusted in Christ, called on Christ to be my Lord and my Savior, and that was that was February of nineteen seventy three. Okay. Never looked back. Okay, so well, great, great um, story in this in this sense. Um, I think there's a lot of people in prominent 
evangelical churches. They, they're not part of a mind science cult. But what I've noticed that is that as the church has changed message and changed mission and gotten off topic and off of you know off onto other tangents. Uh, I think uh, it may be a fair way of saying it that uh, a lot of these churches have become places where people can basically come to uh, the God of their own making and gather around and uh, and you know kind of worship their own concept of Jesus, not the not the Jesus that's revealed in Scripture. And uh, and you know I know that's kind of a harsh way of putting it, but uh, like you, I've actually come out of a cult myself. And um, what's frightening is is that you were in a you were in a cult and you understand the cult mentality how you you set up these barriers, uh, you know mental barriers. You know it, it, there's during the sermon time you 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 kind of rehearse these different things where you know we know that they're not telling the truth because right. you know and and they're doing everything they can to block out the biblical Jesus. If they would spend right. you know and and they don't spend any time actually correctly handling the biblical text. And so, right. but the the you know I think Luther is the one who said it that the human heart is an idol factory, and so there's all these different idols out there that have the name Jesus slapped onto it. And you were in a Gnostic mind science cult. I was in the uh, New Apostolic Reformation. It was at the time it, we called it the Latter Rain. And, oh, okay. And uh, you know that that was a crazy time in my life, but. The thing that uh, you know kind of opened up my eyes was somebody just willing to sit down and do the comparative work and say, you know, here here's what your prophetess says and here's what the scriptures say, and that it created that wedge that made me realize I wasn't hearing the truth, and drove me to want to know, you know, really Jesus on his own terms of what what was the truth, what does the Bible really say, what is it really all about. And was, was that a was that a shattering moment? Y- yeah, uh, I had one foot out of the door at that point. Um, yeah. you know, it, it it was it was kind of, it was almost like a you know I'm going to give the Bible a try, but you know I think it's true. I know you know I I I think I can trust it, but if this doesn't pan out, I you know I'm gone. Atheism yeah. was looking pretty good at that point. Oh boy, oh boy. But uh, so the idea then is is that. <laughs> I think the church has been accommodating to people's idols and their misconceptions or their intuitive thoughts about how who they think God is and who Jesus is rather than uh, preaching the gospel, which in, when you preach the gospel, it requires you to preach the law, and it it is confrontational by nature because you're yeah. confronted with your own sins. So, yeah. so right. one of the things I really like about your book is that you you try to set a context for the world tilting gospel and 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 you made a point of making you know I I'm glad you talked about this you know it, this is coming from uh Acts chapter 17 the people who were complaining about the apostle Paul and uh and his companions these men who were turned the world upside down you know you know that, yep. that that's the so what exactly is the uh, the gos- the world tilting gospel, and, get, and can you s- succinctly set it up um, as far as the anthropology that the Bible lays out for us? I mean, aren't we all just basically good people who just need a some motivation to you know to you know make some better decisions in, in our life? <laughs> well, uh, let me let me come to that. I just want to key off of something you just said. Something you and I both. You and I both experienced that shattering moment. Yeah. You know, that 
I think that's critical, and I think that that is why so much of evangelicalism is lame, because too many leaders and too many followers have not had that. That real conversion is the result of a clash of warring worldviews. And if that hasn't happened, then there hasn't been conversion, or it hasn't been the thorough conversion. I mean, I remember keenly, I wonder if you had the same thing. After, after February, I think it was February 11, 1973, that was a Sunday, and it's easy for me to date because it was a, it was a 180 degree turn for me. Um, I knew that I didn't know anything. Uh, mm-hmm. I knew that I didn't know how to look at the world right. right. I knew that I didn't know how to look at myself right. I didn't know how to look at God right. I didn't know how to pray right. I realized I had to rethink everything. Yeah. And I think that when somebody becomes a Christian and doesn't realize that, he thinks he's in a position to negotiate his Christian walk. Mm-hmm. And to, to, to barter with God as to what parts of God's opinions he will buy into and what parts of his own or his culture's opinions he'll continue to um, cling to and, and try to just find a way of mashing Christianity into that mold. Right. There, there has to be a defeat of where we are by where God is. You're absolutely right. There has to be a defeat. It's, yeah. And, yeah. and I think that's a good way of uh, – that's almost a good synonym for repentance – because yeah. you know the Greek, the Greek word for repentance is metanoia, which means a change of mind. And if right. you, you've been, if you've been brought, maybe kicking and screaming, the way Lewis describes it, you know, to that change of mind, there is literally a point where you sit there and go, "I don't know nothing." Right, right, right. But the, the trouble is, you now people will hear that and they'll say, "Yeah, change of mind." And what they what they really think that means inside is change of opinion or change of, of a set of opinions. And, and maybe I've, I've almost come to think it might be better to call it a transformation of mind <laughs> or, or a, uh, a, uh, a sea change of mind. Because mm-hmm. it's not just a matter of, you know, Tuesday when I took the Jesus test, I checked the box that said, good moral teacher. But Wednesday I checked the box that says, son of God, now I'm a Christian. Yeah. Uh, that's involved. That's involved. But that's not the whole thing. So uh, if there isn't that, that confrontation, we've been talking around Acts 17, where the world-tilting world phrase comes in. I, I'm thinking as I'm listening to you about Paul going to the Athenians about the unknown God. See, now he said, you've got this pillar, you've got this, this, this uh, statue of the unknown God. He doesn't say, you know, you're right to worship the unknown God. That is correct. He is unknown. I embrace your embrace of this unknown God. <laughs> Instead, what he says is, what you don't know, I'm going to tell you. Right. He and, and notice he doesn't go to Zeus. You know, he, right. he, Jesus is a right. lot like Zeus. Let's talk about the common ground between Jesus and Zeus. You know, that's right. And he doesn't even he doesn't really make common ground between them and the unknown God. He just accepts the fact it's good you admit you don't know this God. Let me tell you about him. Right. And then what he proclaims to them is a radically different worldview than the cyclical worldview they held, he, he, he preaches a creator, mm-hmm. and he preaches a history that's heading for a terminus, which is different than the way they viewed it. And he preaches the resurrection, and, and Apollo, when he founded Mars Hill, is supposed to have said, once man's blood is shed, there is no resurrection. And that, mm. what does Paul preach there? Right. Does he preach that Apollo is right? No, he preaches that there, there was a resurrection in Jesus, and there will be a, a, a judgment of the living and the dead. Right. I, I, and there was a clash there. There was a clash there at Mars Hill. And I think it's a lot of people don't really understand this unless they take the time to you know look at it historically, 
that Paul's message was not well received, and for the first you know few centuries of of you know of of Christianity, there wasn't a significant uh, church presence in Athens. I mean, right. it, you you from oh. you know from the you know from the short term point of view, you can almost say that was a defeat. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, in fact, some people I'm, I'm sure you know they look at Acts 17 and they see the count of of converts and they say, yeah, Paul failed there. That's why he didn't get very many converts, and that's why in First Corinthians he he just promised that he was never going to do that again because he realized he'd really fouled up. Well, he, you know, if I preach and there's converts, I think that's a terrific harvest. And Paul preached and he had converts. Yeah, he had um, he had a few. But you know, yep. it, it wasn't it wasn't several thousand being baptized. It wasn't it wasn't like what we saw, um, you know, in Acts chapter two. I mean, there was a few folks, and and they they formed the nucleus of of the Christian church there in Athens, and it wasn't much of a presence to begin with. Yeah, well, what percentage of the soils is good? Jesus puts up four soils. What percent of them is is good? Twenty five percent. Yeah. Yeah. Not, not the majority. Not the majority. Right. So, well, uh, let me get to you. I did. I did remember your question. Okay. So, um, is the gospel just basically that we're all well-meaning, uh, good-hearted folks who just need a, uh, a hand up in life and some encouragement? That's where we have to start looking at man the way God looks at man. The, the only way you can measure whether that's true is you've got to know what the standard is. Mm-hmm. You know, somebody brings me a P- I don't know anything about car engines. Uh, somebody brings me a part of a car engine, asks me whether it's working like it should. I'd say, you know what, I don't have any idea because I don't know what it's supposed to be doing. I'd, I'd have to understand that to tell you whether it's working right. No, so you, now you have to turn in your man card. I'm sorry. Um, this this uh, uh, interview must uh, come to an abrupt halt until you've gone to... Yeah. <laughs> <No, I'm kidding. laughs> the interview is over. <laughs> um, but well, no, I've got a sword hanging i got a sword hanging on my wall right here. Does that give me a, a loaner card back? Okay, yeah. I think we can make an exception then. Well, if you need me to hold it for the rest of the interview, I can do that too. So. Uh, okay, I'll, it, it, that'll depend on the next things that come out of your mouth. Oh, <laughs> all right. <laughs> but the point all you're right. making is is that because you're not an expert in auto repair, if somebody asks you the question, you know, hey, is my car working all right, you just wouldn't know without some kind of a standard to look to. I got to know what it's supposed to be doing. Right. I got to know what is this what is this part meant to do. And the only way that we can know that is not by polling the sinners, frolicking below, or taking an average of what people are doing and saying whatever the average is correct. But we've got to look at Genesis one, where God comes up with this whole ideal idea of man mm-hmm. and makes man. <clears throat> you know, I, I think we're so familiar with that chapter. We forget that as far as... God didn't have a manual of how to make a man. Right. What God did came out of God's heart. God could have theoretically made any kind of being he wanted and called it anything he wanted, but he had a plan. Obviously, you look at the structure of the days of creation, God knew where he was going. He did step by step by step. Everything is leading to a climax, and the climax is man. He creates mm-hmm. his kingdom, then he creates someone to be king over it, and that's, that's Adam in Genesis one twenty six through twenty eight, where God says, "Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them rule." So He created man to be His image to creation. Mm-hmm. He created man to rule on His behalf over creation. Mm-hmm. Obviously, He created man to reflect Him, to reflect His His moral character, 
that he, he created man to have fellowship with him. And obviously, if he created man to rule creation, he meant him to rule according to his will and not as a rebel. And he created him in a perfect creation. He gave him a perfect environment. He gave him uh, a perfect helper to rule that environment with. Everything was perfect. And, and by the uh, end of the sixth day, you know, from up to then, with the exception of Monday, at every point God says, good, good, good. And only when he creates man in his image does he say, he says, very good. Mm -hmm. Now he's made what he wants to make. So that's what man is supposed to be. But a massive change happens in chapter 3. In chapter 3, God has said that here's this one tree you can eat from any bush, any tree you want, with the exception of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And where do we find our heroine, Eve? We find her standing in the one place in all of creation she has no business being in front of that tree, talking to the one creature she shouldn't be listening to. Right. She should be ruling over with her husband, a serpent. And the serpent basically uh, convinces her that she should not think God's thoughts after God, that she should not accept God's judgment for her judgment. She shouldn't embrace his standards as her standards. She should now set out and be a self-actualizing person. She should, she should make up her own standards. She should make her own choices. She should um, just decide, you know, be the perfect existentialist woman and uh, validate herself by making decisions. And then when she does that, she'll be like God, he tells her. Although God had told her if she does that, she'd be dead. Mm -hmm. So she does it. She buys the line. Adam doesn't buy it, but he wants to keep peace at home. And so he, he accepts it and he eats it. And they sin, and immediately they're shattered. A broken people. You, you just see it immediately. You see right away, as soon as God is on the scene, what are they doing now? They're hiding behind the bush from the God who made the bush. And this has got to be the stupidest thing. The stupidest scene you can imagine. Yeah, just hide here, honey. He'll never see us. So they're hiding behind this bush, and God calls them out. And right there, just the fact that they do that means they've lost God. If they think God is the sort of person they can hide from, for how long? Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Obviously, they've completely, their, their, their view of God is shattered. Their fellowship with God is shattered. Why are they running from God? Because they're guilty. Because now God is scary. He wasn't just awesome anymore. Now he's scary. And as soon as God starts nailing Adam, he passes the buck to eat. So, relationship with God, shattered. Mental processes, shattered. Way of evaluating everything? shattered and relationship with fellow man shattered mm. that's sin that's the fall man is ruined at that point in fact he's dead you know you you say well i thought god said he'd die off and he's still walking around and talking oh he's dead he is d-e-a-d -E dead he has spiritually died it just takes his body a few centuries to catch up but mm -hmm. he's dead. okay now real so, quick real quick here. yeah so yeah. you're you're describing the Garden of Eden uh, the way uh, you know CSI would be describing a crime scene. <laughs> uh -huh. You know, like there, there's there's some serious crime that took place here, and there's some major ramifications for the crime yeah. that just took place. Now, yeah. one of the things I'm noticing here is that uh, you're not talking about the story as if it's some mythology. You know, like uh, the story of Zeus or something like that. I mean. Are, are you literally saying that there was a literal Adam and Eve who really did this? It was a real garden? Come on, this is the 21st century. The, we live in postmodern times, and you're talking about Adam and Eve like they were living and breathing people. What's wrong with you? 
Uh, yeah, well, I got I had my world tilted. Uh, is what's wrong with me? Back in '73, this is this is a a result of that. My my conversion was everything to do with Jesus. Uh huh. My conversion was everything to do with being convinced of the truth of Jesus Christ. So, I looked at Jesus, and I want Him to teach me how to look at the world and how to look at myself. And He clearly put those chapters as straight up history. I mean, and he goes back there. They ask him about marriage. Where does he go? He goes back to Genesis 1 and 2. Mm-hmm. Um, he treats that. He treats that. I, I learned how to read Genesis from Jesus <laughs> to the best of my ability. So yeah, I treat it like he did. I treat Adam and Eve like real people and, and uh, the events as, as real historical alone. Okay, so you, you you're not buying this idea that Jesus was just a you know a product of his time, and if he were alive today, knowing what we know, he would have never thought that Adam and Eve were real people. No, I really don't, and and I'm glad you brought that up because I think that people who do view it that way, these are this this is a sign of somebody who has not had his own world tilted. This is a sign of somebody who desperately wants to fit fit in with the world mm-hmm. that is the enemy of God. He wants to be respected by the world. He did not get that viewpoint from starting with Scripture. And and what we just talked about, the, the fall in Genesis 3, explains to us why we so desperately need to do it that way, why we can't start with the world and ourselves, mm-hmm. because that is autonomy, that is self-rule, and that's what broke us off from God and made us dead. Okay, so that that would that qualify then? Somebody who's thinking along those lines is still having friendship with the world, which is what the scriptures say is enmity with God. Yeah, that's how I see it. That's how I see it. Okay, so it's a, it's a form of unbelief. Yeah, I, I do think so. I mean, I, I, I'm not going to sweep into hell everybody who's had a, ever had a different view of Genesis than I. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, everybody who gets to heaven is going to get there with some need of uh, correction. Uh, I absolutely expected myself, and uh, we all are going to be sitting in Beginning Theology 101, you know, at the start of the Kingdom of God. Okay. But, um, um, yeah, no, I, 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 I too much see uh, that what, what, what animates that is just a desire to, to fit in, to not be embarrassing, like, like one very famous Old Testament scholar said, you know, the world will just see us as a cult if we don't uh, accept evolution and things like that. Well, you know, I really want the world to see me as a whole lot worse than that. Yeah. Okay. Well, I, you're well on your way with your world tilting gospel stuff and trying <laughs> to tell everybody that they're not good people. Good night. You just it told you just basically painted all of humanity as dead in trespasses and sins. That's right. That's right. And obviously, that's not a that's not an uh, an original idea with me. But one of the things I do spend some time on in the book is I I spent a good deal of time in Genesis three and what happened there. And I also developed the fact that what we see there was not a, a one-off. Right. That Adam then went and he had a son in his own likeness, after his own image. Yep. And so uh, he was born just as dead as Adam. And I traced the fact that, you know, some people sloppily get away with saying this idea of being dead in trespasses and sins, like you just said, that's a Pauline idea. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's a Pauline idea, and Paul got it from the Old Testament. It's all over the Old Testament. Right. Yeah, and, uh, you know, if you think about it, I mean, there weren't that many people on planet Earth before the first murder took place. Um, you know, right. you know, Adam right. and, you know, and, you know, it's so, you know, I mean, you don't have to go very far into the Genesis, Genesis narrative after the creation of, of mankind, uh, yeah. you know, and the fall to realize that 
that rebellion against God that Adam and Eve, you know, perpetrated broke us badly. And right. and so, you know, okay, the, which by the way, this is one of the strengths of uh, of your book is that you spend so much time correctly laying out what the problem is cuz you don't the go- I don't think the gospel the world tilting gospel makes any sense whatsoever unless it's put into the context of a sinful and fallen and dead and trespasses and sins humanity because it 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 seems like so many of the different gospels I'm here I'm hearing being preached in all these churches around the world it, it never is does it cross their mind that people are dead in trespasses and sins it's as if our problem is is that uh, we we just haven't found the right life coach right that's right so they see jesus as a really desirable add-on yeah you know he, he he's he's jesus is my co-pilot he's the guy who's gonna help uh direct my movie about my life and and really make yeah. it shine yeah that's right. He, he's he's the ultimate accessory for the well quaffed uh, uh, modern person. Right. All right, we're going to pause right here. We're going to pay some bills, and uh, we'll be right back. Uh, if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We will be right back. No itching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> So, can I help you? Yes. Do you have a copy of 30 Days in the Desert to Learn Your Purpose and to Cast the Vision to the Ignorant Masses by S. Furtick, QWZ? Uh, well, I don't know the book, sir. Uh, never mind. Never mind. How about 101 Ways to Build a Mega Church and Make Big Bucks? I? Well, some American gentleman whose name eludes me at the moment. I believe his last name rhymes with Shin. Uh, no. Well, we haven't gotten in stock, sir. <sighs> oh, well. Not to worry. Not to worry. Can you help me with the screw tape letters? Ah, uh, yes. C.S. Lewis. No. I beg your pardon? No, Harold Wapcat. I think you'll find C.S. Lewis wrote the screw tape letters. No, no, Lewis wrote the screw tape letters with one C. This is the screw tape letters with two C's by Harold Wapcat. The screw tape letters with two C's. Yes, I should have said that. Yes, well, in that case, we don't have it. Hmm, funny, you've got a lot of books here. Yes, we do, but we don't have the screw tape letters with two C's by Harold Wapcat. Hmm, pity, it's more thorough than Lewis's. More thorough? Yes, I, I wonder if it might be worth looking through all of your screw tape letterses. No, sir, all of our screw tape letterses have one C. Are you sh- quite sure? Quite. Mm, not worth just looking. Definitely not. <sighs> all right, how about the great divorce? Yes, well, we have that. That's G R A T E, divorce, but also by Harold Wapcat. 
Yes, well, in that case, we don't have it. We don't have anything by Harold Wapcat. Actually, he's not very popular. Not the problem of pain. That's P-R-O-L-P-R-O-A-B-L-U-M. No. Mm, the Chronicles of Narnia with a K. No. How about Out of the Violent Planet? Definitely not. <sighs> Sorry to trouble you. Not at all. Good morning. Good morning. Oh! Yes. I-, I wonder if you might have a copy of Perilous Landra. No, as I said before, we're right out of Harold Wapcat. No, not Harold Wapcat. C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis. Yes! You mean Paralandra? No, Perilous Landra by C.S. Lewis. That's Lewis with two S's, the well-known feminist lesbian theologian. No, well, we don't have Perilous Landra by C.S. Lewis with two S's, the well-known feminist lesbian theologian, and perhaps to save time, I should add that we don't have Dandy Landra by C.S. Lewis or the penultimate battle by Clive Staples' Chewbacca, or even Out of the Silent but Deadly Planet by B.S. Lewis with four eyes and a silent Q. What a pity. That's my favorite. Why don't you try Zondervan? I, I did. They sent me here. Did they? I, I wonder. Oh, do go on, please. Yes, I-, I wonder if you might have the amazing adventures of Pastor Perry Noble and his intrepid spaniel Stig amongst the giant purpose-driven pygmies of Beckles. Volume 8. No. Don't have that funny. Got a lot of books here. Well, I mustn't keep you standing here. Thank you. Oh, well, do you have... No, no, we haven't. We haven't. But, 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 Sorry, but, but, it's one o'clock. We're closing for lunch. I, I saw it. I saw it. What? What? I, I saw it over there. Religious Bodies of America by F.E. Meyer. Religious Bodies of America by F.E. Meyer. Yes. B-O-D-I-E-S. Yes. M-A-Y-E-R. Yes. Yes, well, we do have that, as a matter of fact. The expurgated version. Uh, I'm sorry, I didn't quite catch that. The expurgated The version. expurgated version of Religious Bodies of America by F.E. Mayer? The one without the Lutherans. The, the one without the Lutherans? They've all got the Lutherans. It's a standard religious body. The Lutherans are in all the books. Well, I don't like them. They baptize infants. All right, I'll remove it. Any other religious bodies you don't like? I don't like the Presbyterians. Uh, the Presbyterians, right. Presbyterians. There you are. Any others you don't like? Any others? The Methodists. The Methodists, the Methodists, the Methodists, the Methodists. Ah, uh, yeah, they are. There you are. No Lutherans, no Presbyterians, no Methodists. There's your book. I can't buy that. It's torn. <laughs> I-, I wonder if you have... Um... No, go on. Ask me anything. We've got lots of book here. You know, it's a bookshop. How about Osteen brushes his teeth? No, no, we don't have that one. Funny. Uh, the Gospel According to Rob Bell. No, no, no. Try me again. Uh, I-, I know. Uh, Martin Chemnitz is the two natures in Christ. No, no, no. What, 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 what? Yeah, Martin Chemnitz is the two natures in Christ. Martin Chemnitz is two... Yes! We got it! I see it somewhere! Yes! I found it! It's here! Got it! Yes! Here we are! Martin Chemnitz's Two Natures in Christ! There's your book! Now buy it! I don't have enough money. I'll take a deposit! I, I don't have any money! I'll take a check! I, I don't have a checkbook! I got a blank one! I, I don't have a bank account! Right! I'll buy it for you! There we are! There's change! There's some money for a taxi on the wait, way home! There's wait! Your book. Wait! Wait! What? 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 I can't read! You can't! Read. Right? Sit down. Sit down. Sit, sit. Are you sitting comfortably? Right. Chapter 1. Because the person of the incarnate Christ is made up of two natures, the divine and the human, united into one hypostasis, there follows from this a communion of attributes. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. 
Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. All right, we're back. Warning, without properly understanding true biblical anthropology, you are not capable of understanding the biblical gospel. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions, in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. And when you get there, you'll see the two famous friendly yellow buttons uh, click on one of them, the uh, the Join Our Crew button. You're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 on a monthly basis to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith. And if you'd like to make a one-time contribution, you do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then sending that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And just a reminder, is our way of saying thank you to everybody who supports Fighting for the Faith in the month of December, uh, we will be sending out a link for you to download uh, the Pirate Christian Radio Edition, uh, the ebook Kindle Edition, depending on whichever you know you can pick one, uh, of uh, the proper distinction of law and gospel. This is a, a version we've been working on for the last few months, and it's our way of saying thank you to you uh, for uh, supporting us and making it possible for us to keep doing what we're doing. All right, now without any further ado, here is the balance of my interview with Dan Phillips regarding his book, The World Tilting Gospel. Okay, so all right, let's let's okay, so you've set up the problem here and uh, done a great job by going into uh, the account in Genesis. Uh, so uh, what's what's the solution to the problem and uh, and you know, what does the Bible lay out as this good news and what makes it so good? Well, you really do as you say, you really have to get that to understand the gospel because if you if you don't understand that backdrop, then you look at Jesus on the cross and part of you has to say, what was all that about? You know, I mean, what was all that fuss about? I guess that was, what, a, a gesture about how much God loves us, you know? He loves us this much because Jesus stretched his arms out on the cross, and that's what that's really all about. But, but the thing is, and I, I start one of my chapters that way, if, if you look at somebody in an operating room and there are teams of medical experts and equipment going and they're ready to go round, you know, round the clock on this surgery, you don't think, wow, what was all that about? You think, boy, this guy must be in a wretched condition. Yeah. That he's going he's gonna to require this kind of uh, um, extensive treatment to deal with whatever his problem is. And so likewise, you look at the cross of Jesus, and you just don't get it unless you realize, well, in itself ought to send you back. When you look at that, you look at Jesus saying, Father, if, if there's any way for this cup to pass from me, mm-hmm. and the cup, the cup doesn't pass, and he goes to the cross and he's forsaken by God, well, that points you back to Genesis 1, 2, 3, 
to see why such a radical salvation effort was necessary if anyone was to be saved. Mm -hmm. So you go back to Genesis 1, 2, 3, you see creation, you see the fall, you see God in his holy wisdom offended and alienated by sin, you see man transmitting that, dead in trespasses and sin. But, but, but the same thing, but, but at the same time, you see in Genesis 3, the first announcement of the, um, of the salvation program of God. And I, I spend a good deal of time developing that in the book, how Genesis 3.15, which some have said, no, that really doesn't have anything to do with the gospel. Evangelicals have said that, and, and they've said it for reasons that they, they believe are... Um, you know, consonant with the text, but I don't think that's the best read of the text, and I explain why in the book. But God says to the woman, I'll put hostility between you and the serpent and between your seed and her seed, mm -hmm. and then he talks about striking, and you would think that he's going to say the serpent is going to strike you, or you're going to strike the serpent, mm -hmm. or you expect to say your seed will strike his seed, or his seed will strike your seed, but there's a, a strange jarring cross there, where he says that the seed of the woman will strike the, her serpent, and the serpent will strike the seed. Uh -huh. So the serpent will strike the seed on the heel, and the seed will strike the serpent on the head. And by striking the serpent on the head, that means the utter defeat of mankind's enemy there. Right. That announcement of that seed is the first announcement of the gospel. And yep. so that, that train of the seed just makes its way through the whole Old Testament. Uh, and it, it could, you know, you could depict it as a, uh, a detective search for who is this seed going to be. Right. And with each, each unfolding age of church history, I mean, not church history, but of, of Old Testament history, you get more and more information about who this seed is going to be. And then you get to the New Testament, and the seed has come. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Christmas. Christmas. Yeah, exactly. Ex you know, and... Yeah, yeah, I I never get tired of hearing this story. I just never get tired of it. I I think of my you know my children. I all of them are old now. In fact, my uh, my youngest just turned fifteen, which means a year from now she's gonna have a driver's license. And I you know I can't I don't even want to talk about that. But uh, you know it's when, well, you just finished changing her diapers yesterday, right? It, that's what it feels yeah. like. But you know, yeah. I, you know, I remember not too long ago. You know, every evening, you know, after dinner, you know, after we finished our Bible time, she'd climb up in my lap with you know with the book that she had picked out and want me to read her a story. So you know, I'd read her a story, and it, it like clockwork. After I I would read the story, she would go again, again, yeah. read it yeah. again. And many times I would just read the story again. I mean, I, there was a time when I when I had Good Night Moon memorized. Good Night you know? Moon. That's just what I was thinking. <laughs> you know, in the Great <laughs> Green Room, there was yeah. Anyway, but uh, you know, it's so. The gospel, though, I don't ever get tired of hearing the story because each and every day of my existence, I am fully aware of my sinful and wretched flesh that I literally feel like I'm locked in mortal combat with on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, well, you are. You are. And I am. I am. We are. Right. And it's, it's not that it's, it, that it has the flu, you know, that mm -hmm. it, it's, that is no, my sinful flesh, this, this thing, you know, has it out for me and it, and it's, and it is just, wretched to the core you know right right no no you're, you're right and that's a very important point and I, I think i think the book frames that um 
I sure labored to frame that. I have a whole chapter on the flesh, right? A whole, whole long section on the biblical uses of the word for flesh and mm-hmm. what it means for us. And one of the one of the reasons why I, I was so um, extensive in my treatment is that Christians don't seem to see the flesh as the mortal enemy that it is, but the, but as you know this cuddly little friend of theirs that maybe needs to be denied a little bit, but not something that needs to be absolutely put to death and disowned. Um, and, and let me jump in one other thing. What you just said, the, the, the thing, the thought about being told the gospel again and again. Yeah, I, I preach the gospel to myself all the time. A few months ago, there was quite a bit of stir among some of the high visibility blogs about the gospel and sanctification mm-hmm. and this whole controversy of, well, is sanctification just a matter of preaching the gospel to yourself again? And I just, I really wish those people had read the world tilting gospel. Uh, Jay Adams weighed in on it. I appreciate some stuff he said. Um, and he ascended some people, but he, he liked the world tilting gospel. I, I at least what I tried to do there, I think, is really germane to that whole thing. What does the gospel have to do with sanctification? Is it just a matter of we tell ourselves the gospel story over and over again, and, the, and that makes us holy? No. No. <laughs> well, then, is it a matter of okay, we tell ourselves the gospel gets saved, and then we move on to the real meat and and, and potatoes of the Christian life? No, not that either. So what is it? It's the, and, and I, by the way, I, I thought that early in my Christian life. I thought, okay, the gospel tells us how we become Christian. Then we move on to the stuff that helps us mature. Mm-hmm. No. No, no. We need the gospel all the time, and the gospel is the necessary frame for every step of Christian growth and every step of Christian maturity. Mm-hmm. But it's how there is a place for those commands. There is a place for obedience. There's a place for mortification of sin, um, but it's framed by the gospel, or it's legalism. Yeah, I, I think and you're it, absolutely right. It has to be framed by the gospel. Right, and if it's just the gospel, then it's mysticism. Right. So, yeah, or gospel reductionism, you know, in, in yeah. you know... Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, which is this is it's a bane. It's 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 an insipid form of antinomianism that just you know is is a, a, a curse unleashed on well, the planet. Yeah, Chris, it is. And the reason why I think it's such an elusive enemy is because it sounds so holy. Because you know what you're you're against the gospel. <laughs> is that what you're saying? You're opposed to the gospel. Are you saying you don't think the gospel is enough? Well, that that makes you a nasty kind of heretic. But, yeah. Well, now you sit back and you talk about what the, what the gospel is and the fact that, gee, you know, the apostles, I think, they understood the gospel pretty well, and uh, they didn't have any trouble giving commands and expecting people to obey them. So right. And you got to work that out. And the apostle Paul, talking to the Corinthian church, says that he chose to know nothing among them except for Christ and him crucified. But when you unpack that, you can't help but talk about the law, talk about our not keeping of it, confessing your sins and being forgiven day in and day out. You never yeah. really get you never get past the cross. The cross is not the baby stuff of Christianity. It's it's the center and substance. It's the whole kit and caboodle. Uh, that that is a beautiful illusion because you're 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 Alluding to the uh, to the first chapters of First Corinthians, right? Right. And First Corinthians, First Corinthians is only two chapters long, right? Because <laughs> he, he says that he says he doesn't know anything about the among them except Christ crucified. Well, good luck, and I'll see you some other time. That's the close of the letter. No, no. He, he goes he goes on to lay into them about tolerating immorality, yep. and to lay into them about this guy who's living with his father's wife, right? And to lay into them about you know prostitutes and, and uh, loveless uh, 
flaunting of liberty and tolerating people who deny the resurrection mm-hmm. and on and on and on. So obviously he didn't just think it was enough to say, you know, gospel, 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 well, let's close in prayer. But these are the these are the outworkings of life that the gospel gives birth to. Right. And I, I think what a lot of people miss in Scripture is the the very colorful way in which you know, Scripture paints sin as slavery. We're sold in slavery, and God has to rescue us in a sense. You know, the Exodus story is a, is a great picture of this. That's why I think Paul in in, uh, in uh, Romans 6 said, should we sin that grace may abound? May it never be. You know, because, and then he goes on to explain how, Whatever you present your bodies to, you become a slave to it. Sin is slavery. It's not freedom. I, you know, I don't know of any story of any, you know, any African American who was enslaved who wanted to go back to the South yeah. so they can be enslaved again. Right, and and this in Romans where Paul sets out the gospel so clearly. Yeah. So obviously he didn't see any any contradiction between preaching the gospel, you know, absolutely pedal to the metal, and the nitty-gritty work of mortifying sin and growing in Christ and reckoning ourselves dead and presenting the parts of our body as slaves to God. Right on. Yeah. Well, so I get into that in the World Talking Gospel. The whole part start, start of the book is about sin. It's about God's internal plan of redemption and how Christ accomplished that. And then we get into, now you think this is a book on the gospel, why would you be talking about the flesh and the Holy Spirit and sanctification? Because I just really wanted to frame it all. I wanted to frame mm-hmm. how the Christian life is born. I, I bit off a lot, it's true, and uh, uh, I wondered how people would, would read it, frankly. And I've just been absolutely blessed and humbled and delighted with how people are responding because uh, right. they're, they're getting it. They're getting why it hangs together. Right, and yeah, and you, you frame it perfectly about the Christian life being a struggle, you know, mm-hmm. and you know, it's it's you know, I, Christianity is so hard at times, you know, in the day to day outworking of how this is that yeah. I mean, literally, you, you get to be out, you know, I'm, you're a little bit older than me. I, I'm in my mid forties, but I, you know, I'm already at the point where I'm saying, "Good night." This whole thing's for the birds. Come, Lord Jesus, I I am just groaning, you know, waiting for the end here, you know. But that's just a different story. But all right. Well, but, but no, but isn't that a test of whether you got the gospel? Because does does your grasp of the gospel in the Christian life leave you saying, if the dead don't rise, we're the most pitiable men of all? Oh no, well, hope. You look at some of these right. You look at some of these mega church pastors, right? And you have to say. No, <laughs> no, they believe you can have your best life right now. Yeah. So, no, how can they look at that verse and say amen? They, they think that they can have it all right now. They can't. And, you know, I don't know if you know this, but, you know, I've talked about it on the radio, but, you know, I, my my brother, uh, just a couple of weeks ago, um, you know, he had a, a, a mini stroke and he's younger than me. And uh, he went in for an MRI, and they found uh, they found a tumor sitting right there on his left frontal lobe, and uh, and you know they don't know if it's cancerous or not yet. I mean, he, his uh, surgery is uh, later this week, and uh, you know they're going to remove the tumor. But I mean, you know, when something like that hits you, I mean, literally, my mom when she called me on the phone said, "Chris, your brother has a mass on his left frontal lobe." It didn't register in my mind. 
she had to restate it and i and it's like yeah. what are you trying to tell me and you yeah. know and it's and she had to spell it out and 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 it was like being punched in the face but if if the gospel somebody's preaching cannot be preached to somebody who's going to be dead because right. they have a brain tumor it doesn't make any sense that's right you know that's right and, and you know that's kind of where I'm at at the moment. I, I you know, but ugh. okay. Well, I, I remember hearing uh, Barry, Barry McGuire. I don't know that he's one of the church's leading theologians, but <laughs> I heard him back in the '70s. Loved the way he said it. He said, "You know, it doesn't matter if you're up and out. It doesn't matter if you're down and out. You're out." Yeah. And somebody said, he said, "You know, people tell me, well, Jesus is just a crutch to you." And I said, "Oh no, man, he's a whole stretcher." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, uh, my one of my first pastors said something very like what you just said. He said, "If you, if the gospel you preach, you couldn't equally. This is back in the seventies. You couldn't equally preach in the trenches in Vietnam or the living rooms of Beverly Hills, yeah. and you're not preaching the gospel of the apostles." Right, and it's both, and that's a great point. You, you have to. It, it, it wouldn't make any sense if you can't preach it in Beverly Hills and in the trenches of B- Vietnam. That's the great way of putting it, because. One of the things over and again I hear in the sermons that I review on on this program is yeah. a gospel that literally sounds like the the problem that everybody suffers from is is that they're dissatisfied with their life. You know, it, yeah. it the, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, the, the presentation goes along the lines of something like this, you know, are you tired of trying to, you know, to to manage your life your way? Are you dissatisfied with the results that you're getting in life? Well, try the Jesus way because Jesus right. ensures that you're going to have true satisfaction with with right. how you live your life as long as you agree to surrender to him and live life the way he wants you to live it. Then you'll have real joy. Yeah. Right. I know some really really wealthy pagans and you know, I grew up in a doctor's family in Southern California. So you know, my parents, you know, my dad being a doctor, my mom being a nurse, they hung out with other doctors and nurses, and they were pretty affluent. Some of them lived in you know in San Marino, uh, you know, a nice part of uh, Pasadena. And I re- I remember one time, you know, at a dinner party uh, that uh, we, our family was invited to, I was sitting li- literally sitting on this doctor's couch, and he was having a conversation while holding a cocktail, talking to another doctor. And he said, "You know, I don't know why people say you can't buy happiness; they just don't know which stores to shop in." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you know, I I I remember that distinctly, and going, you know what? You know, coming to somebody like them and saying, "Hey, listen, you know, yeah, are you dissatisfied with your life? You know, you just got to try living life the Jesus way." They're going to laugh you literally out of their house. Right? Yeah, they're they're going to look at you and your uh, Walmart pants and your your Kmart shoes and say, "You mean like you?" Right. <laughs> mm-hmm. or, pardon me. I should have said me, not you. <laughs> I'm sure you're, you're wearing the very best. Yeah, right. You're yes. Look at me in my my big five uh, tennis shoes and my Walmart jeans and say, "Yeah, I've got yeah, my, my I've got my Walmart Wrangler jeans." All right. <laughs> you know, now we're talking. Yeah, th- that's yep. that's some good stuff, man. I mean, the, I, I you know, I can get a I get a good year out of a pair of those. Yeah. <laughs> but but Absolutely. so why isn't the gospel then the world tilting gospel the message that you can be more satisfied with your life if you live life the Jesus way? Because that is uh wrong about man, about God. And about the world. Otherwise, it's perfect. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, just just to, to to stick in the observation about what what you're asking right now, 
is, yeah, you know, if, if the church isn't going to bring the world something totally different than what it already knows, then we should just close up and, and you know, open up bowling alleys because then we got nothing. Yeah. And that's just it. That's just, I, I just did a review, an interview on, um, I think it's on SBC Voices, uh, this website, and is asking me what's wrong with evangelicalism. And one of the things I said is, I said, the basic thing that's wrong with evangelicalism is unbelief. Yeah. And I, I don't mean that we don't have enough faith in the, in the Norman Vincent Peale sense. I mean that God says certain things, and we just don't really believe them. Yeah. And, and we, we, we don't have confidence in the gospel as the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes as being enough, because mm-hmm. we see it, it isn't really, you know, the world isn't that impressed, so, well, but they like music, how about if we do music? Well, I bet they'd like dancing bears, well, how about if we, we do dancing bears? And we'll just do it without the cuss words, surely they'll come, you know, and then we got this this pastor who brings the cuss words, <laughs> well, that's another subject. Yeah. Um, well, how about, anyway, you know, we, we can have an ultimate fighting cage fight in, in our church's parking lot. But you're still on that same subject. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We we want to show the world that we can be just as good as the world is. And yet you have to say, dude, you know, the world is much better at being the world than you. If, if that's what you're going to do, then just let the world be the world because it's much better. You, you'll always be 10, 10 years behind the world in trying to be as good as the world. They, they, they are not going to be impressed. But instead, God has given us a message that nobody ever would have made up, that nobody would have concocted. Mm-hmm. It doesn't come from, uh, it doesn't bubble up from within the world. It comes down from the throne of God. That's what the gospel is. That's why Paul says it's non-negotiable. Mm-hmm. I don't care who brings you another gospel. This is non-negotiable. Anyone who brings any different gospel, including me, will go to hell with that gospel. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. That is the one thing that is clearly non-negotiable in New Testament apostolic teaching is the gospel. Yeah. All right. So you know, let, let's let's talk about some of these other gospels that are out there floating around. Okay. Um, th- there's there's a very popular teacher um, who's recently uh, headed out to Southern California, and he teaches that uh, that God is really big and really loving, and uh, we need to find out what He's doing in the world and. And and participate with him so that uh, everybody can know how, what a big loving God that they have, and ultimately love wins. What's wrong with that gospel? Um, yeah, well, it's what's what's wrong with it is it's it's like just talking about the ninety nine percent milk in a glass and not the one percent arsenic. It's that one percent that's going to get you. Okay, and also it's a it's a definition of terms. We have to remember, and this is something that, that a number of people who, who are doing these Kindle quotes, they, they seize on this and quote this because it's striking to them in the world tilting gospel. I make the point that the first that God's first and highest object of love is himself. So I would absolutely agree that love wins if you define it the way the Bible defines it. That God's love for himself will, will win. God loves himself more than he loves anything or anybody. So any gospel of love that doesn't uh, end up with the glory of God at its center and not compromising one bit of the character and the word of God is a non-starter. It's, it's obviously not a gospel because it's not love as God calls it love. The world means by love indulgence. Okay. And yeah, what, what that, that book, Love Wins, really means is indulgence wins, but that's not a biblical gospel. 
uh, remember, we got to start with creation. We got to start with uh, commandment. We got to start with fall. God created us for a specific purpose. He gave specific commands. We broke it. We became sinners. And now he doesn't owe us anything except for judgment. And he absolutely owes that. Mm-hmm. Every last sin will be punished to the full degree by the wrath of God. The gospel is the explanation of how sins have been punished in the person of Christ okay. and how we can be rescued from the the. Uh, the only way we can be rescued from the natural outcome of our own sins. Okay. But the trouble with it, of course, is it's just not, it is not true to the whole Bible. It doesn't take the whole Bible and, and the whole God of the Bible. Okay, what do you say then to the person who would say something like, well, listen, you're talking about God punishing sins. I mean, come on, Jesus is the Son of God. You're describing something that sounds like it's close to... Uh, heavenly, you know, God engaging in child abuse. I mean, isn't the isn't the gospel really about Jesus demonstrating to us the evils of the Roman Empire and imperial framing stories so that we can finally have the scales fall from our eyes so that we can see for ourselves that we need to defect from the empire and and sign on to uh, Jesus's kingdom agenda. Well, trouble with that. Now, there's like like most error. There are elements of truth in that, but the big trouble with it is that Jesus was not a, a Romanist. Jesus was a believer in the whole of the Old Testament, and the way the Old Testament frames it, literally from the first chapters, is an issue of penal substitutionary atonement. Go back to that garden. I got to say, you know, I've, I've had and taught Hebrew and all this sort of this and that, and just uh, over the decades, I've come to see more and more in those first three chapters of the Bible. If, if you don't get those right, you're just going to get everything else wrong. Um, so Genesis 3 is this big rebellion against God. What does God do? Immediately he judges the man and the woman and the serpent. And then what does he do? He kills an animal. He sheds an animal animal's blood to address their shame and their guilt. God does that. Mm-hmm. God offers the first animal sacrifice. You know, animals don't come with Velcro and zippers. Um, the only way you're going to get um, skin off an animal is by shedding its blood. So you see that right away, and you see right away in the following chapters the offering of bloody sacrifices. And this is not uh, formalized a lot until you get into the book of Leviticus, where you see that when God makes a religion, he makes the the uh, worship of Israel, um, that sacrifices at the heart of it. It, it, It's it's a funny thing to see the structure of of Exodus, really. Everybody knows the Ten Commandments, right? It's it's one one of the chapters that should be easy to remember. Two tables times ten is twenty. So there you are in Exodus 20 with the Ten Commandments. Mm -hmm. And God says, keep these commandments. But what's the next thing he immediately does? He talks about how to build the tabernacle. What do you do in the tabernacle? You offer bloody sacrifices. So it is like God is saying, keep these laws, and when you don't, <laughs> see, this is what you do. Yeah. And, and Leviticus spells out it. It's the offering of an innocent and flawless sacrifice in the place of the sinner and by the shedding of blood. And Leviticus 17.11, which I go into at some length in the World Open Gospel, Leviticus 17.11 gives us the whole central idea of this animal sacrifice, which is not a barbaric um, uh, uh, evolutionary religious holdback, but it was revealed by God, and Leviticus 17.11 says why. 
that the blood on the altar is a substitute, that it is the blood by reason of the life. The life of the flesh is in the blood, and the blood on the altar is the substitute. The, the, the innocent victim taking the judgment of God for sin on behalf of the sinner. And so as you go through the Old Testament, you see this, this pointing forward to this figure, and most clearly in Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, 12, which I also open up at some length in the book, uh, that, that this will be a human being, the servant of the Lord, mm-hmm. who will offer himself as a sin offering for the sins of his people. And the chastisement that will bring them peace falls on him. So penal substitutionary atonement is a plan of God from the very start. It's a plan that's concocted, if you want to use that verb, between the members of the Trinity. God didn't abuse his son. God, uh, the triune God, came up with this plan, and this plan involved the son voluntarily coming and fulfilling prophecy, fulfilling all righteousness, and taking the place of his people under God's wrath. God didn't... God didn't throw it at him, and the son wasn't placating an angry God. This was the triune God's plan for man's salvation to the glory of God. Okay. You seem obsessed about Jesus here. I mean, what's wrong with you? You should be talking about yourself more. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, got, I got no part of this except one of the, one of the perpetrators. Okay. That, that, that's right. my list of credits at the end of the movie, perpetrator uh, number four thousand nine. Yeah, per, yeah, uh, yeah. Mine, mine will be right there with you. Um, okay, so uh, here's another gospel I'm hearing a lot of lately. Um, God is up in heaven. He really wants to help you out. He's got a big dream that he wants to reveal in your life, but you need to make a decision to surrender to him so that and, and show him that you're serious about receiving this dream. And once you do that, God's got a big plan for your life. Well, again, there are elements of truth in that. God does definitely have a big dream, but his big dream is all about Jesus. His, his dream of that, and it's not a dream, it's a plan. But um, God, uh, Colossians 1, makes it clear that, that he has done all things so that Jesus might come to be to have first place in everything. And in Philippians 2, he says, every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord. So you, little dreamer that you're talking about, you are going to bow your knee and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But the question I'd ask you right now is, that, is that going to be good news to you or is that going to be bad news to you? As I come to you, a natural child of Adam, just like I was, that's really, really bad news. Because as I come to you, just a natural-born child of Adam, you're not just an innocent, pudgy little dreamer making his way through life uh, with good intentions. You're a rebel against God, measured against the holy righteousness of God. You're nothing but a criminal waiting for the sentence to drop. And so what, what your issue is is not how to um, have God realize your great dreams, but your issue is how not to become part of God's execution of his wrath on his enemies. And the gospel is the only answer to that question. The gospel says that you need to come out with your hands up, that you need to realize just how, how deserved the wrath of God is against you as a sinner. You need to see yourself not, not as somebody whose dreams need to be rubber-stamped by God, but somebody whose whole way of approaching things is at odds with God. And you need to be reconciled with God through the, the, uh, the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ, which alone can make sufficient atonement for sins and sinners. Okay. <laughs> Boy, you, 
you're not really helping people with their self-esteem here. I mean, telling them that they have to come out with their hands up, you're making them sound like a bunch of criminals. Yeah. Yeah, I did get that from the Bible. I did get that from Jesus when they asked him about the tower that, that, that fell and they, all these uh, people who died. And Jesus' answer was, do you suppose they were better, uh, deeper sinners than you? Yeah. Unless you were, you'll perish too. Yeah, my, my... Jesus is not a... This is not a, a possibility thinker, you know. And when he talks about what comes out of the heart of man, he doesn't say flowers and rainbows and puppies. He says what comes out of the heart of man is adultery and murder and theft and blasphemy. Uh, yeah, and that's true. One of my favorite stories is uh, is the story when Jesus is having dinner at the house of Simon the Pharisee, and the woman crashes the party. The the, the town prostitute, the town sinner woman, she crashes the party and. And and washes Jesus's feet with her tears and tries to dry it with her hair. What a mess that was! And Simon is just so incensed. And then Jesus tells this one, just this real quick little mini parable. You know, two two people owed a money lender. You know, money. One person, you know, a whole lot of money, and the other person not so much. But neither of them could pay. You know, right, you know, right, right. You know, he, he, he said neither of them can pay, so he canceled the debt of both. Who will love him more? You know, and, it, and it's like you could just see Simon like a couple of days later going, wait a second. Did he just say that I couldn't pay my debt? Yeah. Right, right. You know? Yeah, exactly. So, mm-hmm. OK, let's let's try another gospel here. Um, Kind of a new exotic gospel that has you know come out onto the scene. Um, God wants you to have audacious faith. He he wants you to you know not come to Him with small dreams, but with big dreams to change the world. You know, maybe teach you how to pray a sun stand still prayer so that you can you can stop the world and and make a big impact on on planet Earth. And uh, you got to come to Him with with some bold audacity. Mm-hmm. That that that's the message. I, you know, I've, I've seen the edges of that in your, I, I think, in your tweets, but I've, I've not yet seen the headwaters of that idea. But so let me, let me approach it. It, it, it sounds just like a, another variety of, of something that's, that's just that keeps cycling through the years that uh, Norman Vincent Peale did and, and Robert Schuler, whose church didn't go that great, um, took up. You know, Robert Schuler said he learned how to be a possibility thinker from Norman Vincent Peale. Norman Vincent Peale said he learned how to be a positive thinker from Ernest Holmes. Ernest Holmes was the guy who founded the cult that I was going to hell in. Wow. So this is just like a whatever generation uh, bit of cultic nonsense. And, and the deal with it is, the deal with any version of that is that it gets the hierarchy of the universe wrong. Um, the universe is not about me living out my dreams. The universe is about me serving God. And the, the, the one thing that we can absolutely know that God says is, is the explosive power that we need to unleash in the world is that the world's hoping gospel. Mm-hmm. That, that, not the book, <laughs> but what the book's about. That's what God has given us that's really about his power. And, and what is that message about? Is that message about our realizing our potential? And um, Well, again, you know, there are just there are little fragments and sparkles of truth in that, because the gospel is the only way that we can become what God meant us to be. But what God meant us to be is not little gods. He meant us to be servants and sons, slaves and sons. He meant us to be people who walked with him, who walked after him, with him as Lord and King of our hearts. 
So um, if it's not a message that has Christ as Lord and center and the gospel is the primary focus, then it's really not what the Bible's heartbeat is about. And, and we come back to that thing where we need to start off having our world be shattered. And as I people, see people buying off into things like this, I see people whose worldviews have not been shattered. They're, they're still trying to, um, what's the word I want? They're trying to enlist God uh, and his aid in their program. Yeah. But what they need to do is they need to find out how to be reconciled to God so they can be made part of his program. And the gospel is the only way. And it, at its center is the person of Christ and the issue of our sins. Right on. All right, so the name of the book is The World Tilting Gospel. Folks can get it at Amazon.com. I have it on my Kindle, so, um, you know, I, I, I get to see what other people are highlighting. You know? <laughs> yeah, there you go. Right. So, uh, well, Dan, thank you for uh, for coming on Fighting for the Faith. Well, thanks for having me. It's, it's been a joy. It's, it's gone fast. Yeah, you know the time really does go go by fast. It's because I'm such a you know engaging you know interviewer. You know, that's it. That's it. <laughs> but uh, you know, again, it's it's not an expensive book, and uh, they can get it in uh, you know in paperback or in in Kindle at Amazon.com. Or now, are you is it is it being picked up at any of the the local Christian bookstores? It doesn't seem like it would they would sell too many copies there. I mean, you, you got to compete with guys like T.D. Jakes and. Uh, and folks yeah, like that. Right. I'm no match for that. Well, I think uh, family Christian books, I'm told, uh, carries it. And uh, but I, I've I've actually not been in many Christian bookstores, so I I've, I've not seen it. Uh, somebody sent me pictures of it in the, uh, of course, the Grace Community Church bookstore, and uh, Professor Jim Hamilton sent me pictures of uh, his seminary's bookstore. It's uh, it's uh, up on a top shelf at his seminary's book bookstore. Or it was when he took the picture, so it's in some stores, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we live in an age where you know people can get online and get you know and you know purchase things online. I, I think that's the most effective way of uh, of purchasing things. And of course, if they have a an ebook reader, they can you know purchase it and download it immediately. And what I'll do is I'll put a link over at fightingforthefaith.com. Uh, with this program, if they just want to click on it and you know and go directly to it, so that they can uh, okay. purchase the book. I again, I I really enjoyed the book. I found it fascinating. Um, I don't I, I don't want I, I'm hesitant to call it a catechism or you know a, a you know a Christianity 101 book because people will somehow think that there's not a lot of substance to it. But you you handle the major big blocks of of the overarching meta narrative of of the fall and redemption and 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 what the what the biblical gospel is and what the solution to our real problem is that's laid out in scripture and you do it in a way that uh is readable and has uh, some significant depth to it too which I think is uh is a pretty tough combination to pull off so well it's cuz I'm simple minded in order to understand things, I have to chew them pretty thoroughly. But yeah, we get into uh, election, predestination, propitiation, justification, sanctification, and a whole lot more. But uh, I don't think people end up feeling like they've been uh, dragged through a ringer when they finish because the, the tone people are telling me are, is is conversational. They find it engaging. Well, I, I think... on, my, on my blog, I've had an eight-year-old uh, review. An eight-year-old reviewed it. And one of my readers is telling me that his, his literally 88-year-old mother is reading it late into the night and loving it and looking at the Bible verses. And, you know, I just, I just praise God. When I hear stuff like that, praise God. PhDs are getting something out of it. And, right. 
kids and, and uh, moms. Praise God. I'm a well, happy man. And I think you, I think you uh, accomplished what C.S. Lewis recommended for guys who write theology, to take the hay out of the top part of the barn and put it down where people can get to it. You know? You know some... Well, that's where I am, so... Yeah, <laughs> nice. Well... Well done, and uh, again, the, the the name of it, the World uh, Tilting Gospel. You, you find it easily at Amazon.com. Th- Dan, thank you for coming on the program. Thanks so much for having me, Chris. Thank you so much. God bless you. You too. All right, so there you have it. Good interview, at, and, it, and it's a fine book too. Uh, you know, again, uh, I just reiterate the fact that it covers. You can think of it as it covers Christianity one hundred and one, but it does so with enough depth that you, it's really it's. This is not. Um, a, a book that's shallow. In fact, it, the depth to this thing is amazing. All right. Um, so what'd you think? You know, I'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you could do so on my email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you. In the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.